episode. Before we begin, remember you can ask us a question and we will answer it at the end of the episode. You can ask us by emailing us at basicallyrelatedpodcast at gmail.com. Also, if you enjoy this podcast, please like, share, subscribe, and leave us a review. We are discussing the readings for the 28th Sunday of Ordinary Time, Year A. The prophet Isaiah talks about the great eschatological banquet. St. Paul encourages us to embody the Christ poem and to seek God's rewards. And Christ in the gospel warns that many are invited, but few are chosen. But first, the sacred and the profane. Father was on retreat last week, Mm -hmm. and the retreat seemed to center on the Ignatian principles of Ignatian spirituality. Yep. And so um, it was led by Father Timothy Gallagher, who is one of the most popular uh, speakers on St. Ignatian, uh, Ignatian spirituality. And so uh, it was a very solid retreat. Uh, sometimes retreats are hit, hit or miss in terms of the sure. retreat master. Uh, you know, you being in seminary for a few years, me being a priest for a few years, we've all had our fair share of mediocre retreats. <laughs> and so yes. this one, thank God, was very solid. Um, Father Gallagher is um, a very prayerful reflective man. And so he led us through um, St. Ignatius's rules of discernment. There are 14 rules of discernment, um, very practical rules. And uh, what he did, I remember his uh, first conference, he led us through kind of a biography of St. Ignatius, talking about his great pride. Uh, you know, before he converted, uh, he was uh, um, just seeking the next worldly thrill. Uh, then uh, that famous story where he was uh, in a battle, uh, was wounded by a cannonball, and his leg was essentially just shattered. And he spent a long time, I don't know exactly how long, it must have been, I don't know, maybe, well, it was months, months and months, maybe maybe a, a year or more, uh, just in bed. He was bedridden. And he read The Life of Christ. I, I, I can't remember exactly which book he was reading. But essentially, he grew more familiar with Christian literature. And it was in that bed where he had his conversion. And what we, uh, what we did in the uh, retreat uh, during that same conference, we then looked at St. Augustine's life. And it was interesting, the parallels to see between Ignatius and Augustine. Mm-hmm. And uh, what, he found, what, what I found really um, uh, fascinating it was how Father Gallagher was able to map on Ignatius's rules of discernment into the confessions of St. Augustine. Uh, and so, and so, yeah, it was, it was a, it was a very fruitful retreat. Um, a lot of, uh, priests in the diocese consider this, uh, a fraternal retreat. And so all the priests of the diocese go on this retreat for a week and you see a lot of priests that you just don't see throughout the year. And so it's a good time to catch up with guys that you don't really typically talk to, you know, um, we had a, a lot of communal meals together, and so it was it was relaxing, fun, uh, informative, prayerful. Um, yeah, overall, five out of five out of five stars. <laughs> Would <laughs> that's recommend. My Yelp, yeah, that's my Yelp review. <laughs> so uh, that that Father Gallagher actually came to one of the seminaries I was at. We had sort of like a weekend retreat. Okay, it wasn't kind of a full blown silent retreat or something mm-hmm. like that. But every now and then we'd have sort of these weekends of reflection. So yeah. it was like, you know, Friday night, Saturday, I think Sunday morning. Nice. Um, maybe even ends Saturday. So it was very short, but he came and he talked about the the Ignatian 
examine. Okay, yeah. The the, the four principles. Yes, of, right. Or, or the four stages or four steps of the examine. And I thought he was very good. I, I, I really liked him a lot. Yeah, and he was very well prepared. Um, I've been on retreats where you could tell guys are just like sure. going like minute by minute. They're like, let's see what I want to talk about now. He had a very... Um, he had a PowerPoint that just mapped on perfectly with his what he yeah. wanted to talk about, and it was just very he, well prepared. I think, I think he had a PowerPoint for ours as well. Did he? <laughs> I, he's a PowerPoint kind of guy. That's um, yeah. you know, I don't want to. I'm not going to get into the details of the retreat, but there is one rule um, uh, which I thought was very practical, and, and he he said that is this rule. He said that he wants us to take away if we remember nothing else to remember this rule. Um, and the rule is, when in desolation, do not change your goals or your prayer life. Mm-hmm. And so you can consider desolation as spiritual or natural, right? Um, you know, whether you're feeling tired or whether you're just feeling like a temptation of, of the enemy, um, just encouraging you not to pray. Uh, to recognize, right, to take a step back and recognize, am I, am I in a moment of spiritual desolation or consolation? If you're in desolation, continue to live your life as you would if you were in consolation. Uh, and he's, he claimed that there, were, there, there has been people who came up to him who said this rule saved my life because they, they recognized that they were in a state of despair or depression and they were suicidal. But they said, just by following this rule, I said, okay, I'm not going to change my goal or my prayer life. I just can't change anything. And, you know, he kind of said, like, with a smirk, like, taking your life would be a considerable change in your life. <laughs> yes. Um, and, you know, they were able to get through that moment of desolation. Um, but I, I thought that that was just very practical. And I remember in seminary, I never put words to it, but there would be times where, you know, I feel like, okay, is this life for me? Like, you know, should I do something differently? Uh, but I would recognize, like, you know what, right now I just, I'm just tired. Let me take a nap. Right. And that yeah. can change everything, really, you know? Uh, I think if we're not recognizing uh, our own state, our current state, again, whether it's natural or spiritual, we can very easily make rash decisions uh, just because that was what our mood was at the time, right? Uh, but sometimes all you need is a good meal or a nap, right, um, to change that mood and then get out of that temptation to not praying or, you know, changing something in your life. So, Yeah, no, I, I find the rules of St. Ignatius to be very practical. It, you know, it's it's not just the, these kind of like high ideals, but there's something that can be implemented at any level or stage of your life. Right. Yep. They, they really, and they impact all sorts of decisions, you know, as, as I think Father Gallagher mentioned or alluded to, it's not just these principles for the spiritual life, but it's principles for life, mm-hmm. really, and that they can they can be used for for anything, not just discerning a vocation, although certainly that, but also um, kind of day to day decisions. We're so influenced by our emotions, our passions, our desires that we think that we feel this way, so we we should act this way. Right. But that's a, but Ignatius kind of, I think he's very level headed and temperate. You know, or yeah. a great man of temperance, you know, kind of pull back the reins and just say, hold on a second. Like, yeah. it's not best to act on your emotions. Just stay the course. and Right. And so this is something, you know, I had a conversation with a few priests um, about the conference towards the end of the retreat. 
um, about the conferences. The one critique that I couldn't get really get my head around was that it seems like these rules are written for people with extraordinarily strong wills. Uh, you know, and as you said, like St. Ignatius was a man of great temperance. Uh, you know, he was a man of strong will before his conversion. You know, he saw something that he wanted and he just chased it and he got it, right? Um, and so it's easy to say, okay, when you're in desolation, don't change your goals or your prayer life. You know, in the moment though, are you really going to say, okay, I, I don't feel like praying, but I'm just going to get up and pray. There has to be a little bit of a change of will, right, that, that matches these rules as well. So I think, you know, overall, it, it was a great conference, but I think it's predicated on the fact that we have some mastery of our wills. <laughs> um, yeah, well, you're not a slave to your passions and desires. Right, you know, and, and, and some people are, right? Right, right. But, I, mean, I think that's part of the Ignatian exercises to get out of that. Yeah, to, to, right. So, and, and, you know, of course, Father Gallagher is giving a retreat to priests who have hopefully some control of their passions, right? Sure. Um, and so, again, I think there's a little bit of a presupposition that, like, okay, I'm going to assume that you can control your wills even a little bit. And if you can, then we can apply these rules practically. Right. So, right. But, oh, oh, yeah, overall, great retreat. Yeah. We should do a podcast on St. Ignatius' exercises. Yeah, yeah. It's actually... There's some good stuff there's, there. There's some really good stuff there. There's some, like, borderline Peterson stuff. Yeah. Well, if anything, Peterson stole from Ignatius. Well, that's funny didn't. that you say that because, um, you know, during the first conference, too, when we were talking about rules, uh, he brought up Peterson's 12 Rules for Life. Um, and he said, like, this is one of the greatest books, like, the greatest selling books uh, in our time, uh, and it has to do with rules. Uh, and so this attraction to following rules Contrary to what society would have you think, we actually want rules. Like we want a standard by which to live. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we're not just um, aimless in our, uh, you know, in our goals. Uh, we want a standard. So, yeah, good stuff. So for the profane, my my Jeep battery died. <laughs> or <laughs> I didn't die. Apparently, it was like overactive. It was like too. It was too powerful and like short circuited. I never heard a guy complain that his car was too powerful, right? Yeah, yeah the battery was too powerful apparently, and like blew itself up practically, or short circuited. It didn't blow up because that would be <laughs> quite the damage. But I was reflecting on as my Jeep was being towed away, kind of off in the distance onto the road. I was You're watching, watching it. it. Yeah, I was watching it. I gave it a good pat before I left. And the guy said, I'll t- don't worry, I'll take care of your baby. He's a Jeep owner. He, he said he was a Jeep owner as well, so he understood. But as I was driving away, it's like, you know, there's something very, I don't know, humbling about this. Because as your car is being towed, it's like this this symbol of ultimate like powerlessness. <laughs> like you're just standing there. <laughs> you have no car now. And you're not really sure what might happen to it. I mean, I had an yeah. idea that it was... Maybe the alternator or the battery, mm-hmm. but I was just kind of reflecting of wow, I'm, I'm just there. It goes. I'm helpless. That, that's to just, it, like, that's interesting because Peterson has talked about this actually. We bring up Peterson a lot so far, but um, there's a clip uh, of him. He was on a podcast talking about what a car symbolizes, and you know, a car symbolizes ultimately freedom. 
you can go wherever you want, right? Once you get your car, not only can you go wherever you want, but it's your personal, like, metal bubble where you're isolated from the rest of the world. Yeah. And you choose to go where you want. So it's, it's freedom and isolation, almost. Uh, and so I, this clip was really funny because he was talking about how governments are interfering with the development of cars and setting all these, like, uh, uh, emission standards and, and regulations and uh, he got really passionate. He's like, don't F with my freedom. you know. Don't F with my car. And I'm like, oh, my gosh. <laughs> uh, I'm kind of a car guy. I, I like yeah. uh, automobiles. So I, I really resonate with that idea of like, you know, cars, your sense of freedom. In your, in, oh, yeah. When you're driving, it's like you can think. Right? Yeah, um, yeah. And, well, so, and so, but what, what you say, like you're watching it go away broken. It's yeah. like, there's my. There's my little, freedom going there's away. There's my metal bubble that I can't enter anymore. But there was also a moment where I felt almost free. Because really? you have to worry about Detached a car. From... <laughs> right. right. Okay. Yeah, like it yeah, takes up a fair. lot of mental space, right? Sure. Yeah, you have to get gas for it. You have to make sure no one breaks into yeah. it. It's a garment of skin, as Peugeot would say. Right. right? It, yeah. it, you know, it, it breaks apart. This thing's going to cause me, uh, you know, cost me money. Mm-hmm. But as it was driving away, I was like, wow, I'm, I'm kind of free from it yeah. for a little while. That's right. kind of nice. You know, we ran yeah. out of, you know, we ran out of eggs this morning and Sarah had to take the car and I, I didn't, but the only way for us to get eggs was I, I could walk to the store. And I was like, wow, that's kind of exciting. Yeah. <laughs> like, I get, like I get to get out and get some fresh air and go for a walk. Like, that's kind of a nice idea. And she's like, I'll get it. <laughs> I, I didn't because I didn't have enough time. But there was still this idea of, of being free from this, this burden. Mm. Yeah, well, that, but then no, that's a, I think that's a natural reaction to someone that's well-ordered. Congratulations on a well-ordered soul. Well, um, but um, no, but like whenever any technology uh, is, you don't have it anymore. There is a sense of freedom, right? Yeah. Like you, you, you know, you put away your phone for a retreat. Right. You know, it might be a little awkward for the first couple of days. You're used to reaching for it, but as you go on during the retreat, you're like, this is freeing. I don't have to worry about. Oh yeah. You know where yeah. my phone is. Do I drop it? Right. Yeah. Like, there's so many. Levels of worry that every piece of technology brings. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, yeah, those silent retreats, when they were over, you hear people talking, you're like, oh, my gosh, we're yeah. back. And then, you know, sometimes I'd be at the library when I was in college, my phone would die. And I was like, I'm free. Yeah. No one knows where I am. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, we should move on. I like how we added some sacredness into that profane moment, you know, that was... Well, the line is sometimes... Very thin. Very thin. <laughs> the veil between the two worlds is very thin. So... Before we uh, kind of dive into the readings, we should remember that we are in the eschatological discourses, the eschatological themes. The the lectionary has taken that shift and has oriented us towards the final things, the Mm -hmm. end times, the final judgment. So you're going to see that throughout the readings, that this has to do with judgment, uh, the last things, kind of the grand banquet at the end of life, at the end of not not just kind of our particular lives, but at the end of, I guess, the, the universe, the end right. of the cosmos. So what, what we're going to see is a lot of symbolic imagery of drinking wine, marriage. And these, these are very common metaphors, the feast, wine, marriage of God's covenant with his people. That drinking the best wine at a banquet or a wedding feast is mm. symbolic of the perfection, the union between uh, God and man. And some of the, some background for kind of the ba- banquet imagery, because the banquet imagery happens in both the first reading in Isaiah and our gospel. But it, it's interesting, the, the Old Testament background is that 
a meal is something that is a form of communication. Something's being communicated at a meal, which, which I never really thought of. But when others are invited to this meal, there's a communication being ex- exchanged between the host and those who are invited. Yeah. So the material being used in a speech is language, but the material that's being used to communicate something in a banquet is the food. Mm. You know, if you think about your own kind of parties, if you're throwing a nice party, you, you have nice food. Mm-hmm. But if you, you know, invite people over, I'm thinking of Donald Trump when there's that famous picture of him and, and he got McDonald's. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and there's something that is crude to us, right? You're like, oh yeah. my gosh, like a, a banquet of At a first, president yes. is supposed to on, be... On the face of it, I would have been like, ugh. But then I would be like, yeah, I like, I like Whoppers. <laughs> or whatever it is. Big you know, Macs. <laughs> you can't knock it, right? <laughs> like I, I'm, I like great beer, but also, you know, sometimes a PBR just hits the right? spot. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Just, it's, it's all you need on a hot summer day. Yes. A PBR will do the job. And so sometimes you're hungry for a burger and a McDouble... <laughs> It's gonna satisfy you. You know, I understand. I've seen, I've seen the the Instagram reels. I've seen the YouTube videos. That's not real food. I know. <laughs> it still tastes. I, I know. Trust me. I'm not going there because it's real food. Yes. Anyway. Exactly. Exactly. But yeah. But the point the, the, being, the idea is there's if yeah. if you said, hey, come over. I'm having a really nice dinner, and it's Big Macs. People might think, huh? Well, like, what's being communicated right, here? Right. Or what do you? Right. Or if you know someone has a certain allergy, and you you make food purposefully. Right. <laughs> that doesn't fit their. Is it lack, allergy, of, lack of care? There's a dissonance right. between like what's being celebrated and the food. Um, right. So, so the type yeah, of food absolutely. that you, you give is a, is a communication. And again, throughout our readings, what we're going to see is the best food is being prepared. Mm-hmm. So what is that communicating? What is God trying to communicate to his people by providing them the best food? Yeah. I'm reminded also of, this is not one of the readings for t- this Sunday, but uh, the wedding feast at Cana, right? Right. They have no wine, and he brings out the best wine, right? Um, the uh, In Revelation, the wedding feast of the Lamb has, has begun. You know, we see right. at the end of time when creation is wedded to God, uh, there's a sense of, uh, it's, it's, it's analogous to a wedding feast. Uh, and so the, the, the idea of feast and, and meals and, and weddings uh, is like inherent to understanding like what God desires for us. Yeah. So, yeah. I, I hardly remember. I, I I got to only eat like a little bit of the food at my own wedding. I'm thinking of it now. But everyone who ate told me it was amazing, and that was good. Yeah, That's all I cared about. <laughs> I was like, I just want you guys to enjoy it. Right. But it was good. So the first reading um, is in the chapter chapter 25 of Isaiah, and it's the eschatological banquet of the just. That's the section. So mm-hmm. he's describing, the prophet Isaiah is describing this eschatological banquet in the heavenly Jerusalem, you know, on the highest mountain. So... Isaiah offers a song of thanksgiving and praise and offers this kind of this meditation on the gracious and wonderfully prepared feast that God has given for all nations. You know, so mm-hmm. again, it's eschatological in that this is not just a feast of God and Israel, but actually of all, all nations. Right. So it bringing together of all things. And you have this symbolic imagery of the the wine and the the rich food the juicy foods i think it says he says juicy rich food and that's why you never cook a steak well done i tell this all, all the time people's that it's biblical I, I, yes it's yes it needs to have you know some juice <laughs> right. to it so. right <laughs> right well that's yeah that that's that's what he's saying i was thinking fruit but i, I think i think right. uh, yeah, it could also I'm be i'm thinking steak, steak really. yeah <laughs> um but yeah so, so this 
the, the idea of drinking wine at this and, and sharing the food is is God is the union of God and man of, of God's covenant with Israel, but then also God's covenant with all of all of the the nations of the world of, mm-hmm. the, of the whole world. Mm-hmm. So, whoops, let me see here. So the reading goes that on this mountain of the Lord of Hosts will provide for all peoples a rich feast, a feast of rich foods and choice wines, juicy root rich food and pure choice wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the veil that veils all people and the web that is woven over all nations. He will destroy death forever. The Lord will wipe away tears from every face. So this is just half of the reading. But we also get not just the idea of feasting as eschatological, but you also get this this image of death being destroyed forever. Right. So this is an eternal banquet. So it's an undoing of, of the the consequences of sin at the end times. Yes, and so. No, that's exactly that's exactly right. That's what what was running through my mind, is that the Lord wishes to unify all peoples. Like you said, it's not just between uh, Israel and the Lord, but it's all peoples. The web that is woven over all nations, uh, He will destroy. He will destroy death forever. And this is really important because death is the ultimate uh, divider of all things. And, you mm-hmm. know, de- death is that the wages of sin is death, as St. Paul says. Uh, and if we if we think of sin as that which divides us from God, from other people, from creation, then it's proper that we say in unifying all things in God, then death must be destroyed. Yes. And so this is a great eschatological image of death being destroyed and the union of all things in God. Yeah, that's a great insight. This this idea of the, the veil refers to sin that separates humans from fellowship with God. Yeah, exactly. And sin brings both physical and spiritual death, but now he's saying that that veil will be removed. Yeah. And any separation between us will be taken away. Yep. And that and that goes, again, back to this imagery of the banquet, that at banquets, hopefully, there isn't a separation of people, but they're all united at this feast. Well, and this know. is and this is why uh, the the wedding feast is such a great imagery, is because you have two parties who become one, right? And so, you know, you could think back to um, when uh, kingdoms would be united over a marriage, right? Uh, the right. king will say, "My son will marry, you know, your daughter, and we will create a great union of kingdoms." Um, that that's not arbitrary. I think that. Uh, when we celebrate a wedding, where where this is a new family that unifies both families, right? Uh, and so, so yeah, the, again, just that wedding feast as being something as unitive um, is a very powerful image. So that's a good point, and it brings me back to uh, the understanding of banquets in the Bible, kind of generally. And I guess there's usually about two main forms of banquets: ceremonial and ritual. And the ceremonial is more of a festive meal in which the inviter and the invited celebrate a mutual solidarity of mm-hmm. belonging to each other. But then there's this ritual banquet that marks some sort of personal or in, interpersonal transition or transformation. And I, I think that might go more towards a, a wedding because there's a transformation that's being happened, at, like you said, a, a union of, of two families. Mm-hmm. Or of, or of two people together, that that's what's 
what's happening at, at this eschatological banquet is that mankind, all are, are human, humanity is being united to God. Yeah, exactly. Not just a particular nation or not a particular people. Yep. So that's, that's, that's you're, you're right to point out that unitive aspect yep. of the banquet. And it's not just death that is destroyed forever, but Isaiah goes on to say that the Lord God will wipe away the tears from every face. And so the reproach of his people he will remove from the whole earth. For the Lord, Lord has spoken. This is very interesting uh, because the, we really are looking towards the end of all things. When everything is united in God, no more suffering, no more pain, no more death. All are united. There's no division. And it says, for the Lord has spoken. I think this is a, a bit of a foreshadowing of the coming of Christ in the incarnation. Is that mm. through the word right? The word that is spoken from the Father. Christ is the word. That's how everything will be unified in God. So for the Lord has spoken um, his revelation of his love, which is perfectly manifested in the person of Christ. That's how we achieve that perfect unity um, in, in God. So, Yeah, that, that's the idea of, of the voice of God from, from the throne you have in, in Revelation, kind of you know, after there's a, a new a new heaven or a new earth, God speaks and says that, um, what is it? I, I will, I'll wipe away death, and I will like dwell among my people again. Yes. So there, yeah, there. Um, I guess there's this idea that like you said in the in the word that God speaks in His voice from heaven that He's sending His Son to accomplish these things and at least a temporary new earth and a new right and a yeah. new heaven. The first in his fruits, son. as right. Paul would say, right? right. Yeah. Right. Yep. No, that's good stuff. Now, the last thing I wanted to mention, I don't know if you have more, you obviously, but for, for at least on my part, sure. um, this imagery of the mountain, uh, the word mountain is used three times. Uh, it begins on this mountain, and then it ends, this passage ends with, for the hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain. And so the mountain is a great symbol throughout all of scriptures. Uh, this is where... God dwells, right? Think about um, Moses going up to receive the Ten Commandments, um, gazing upon the face of God. Uh, in the scriptures, uh, our Lord uh, teaches from a mountain. Uh, he chooses his 12 apostles on a mountain. Uh, it, it, the, yeah, the mountain, again, being that great symbol of where God dwells. But a mountain is inherently difficult to climb. This is this is why God is put on a mountain, not only because of the height, right? It kind of it gives us a hierarchical vision of what is at the top mm -hmm. but also we are at the bottom <laughs> and so if we want to approach the lord if we want to dwell on the mountain that implies some kind of difficulty to reach the heights and so you have this so i think that there's maybe two aspects of this symbolism one is that this is a place where God dwells. This is where perfection rests. It's the hierarchy, like the top of the hierarchy. And on the other hand, it's that which must be overcome in order to gain perfection. Um, so there's a sense of struggling uh, to to get where God dwells. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking, of course, of um, Dante and Mount Purgatory, right? In order to be perfected and reach heaven, he has to climb the mountain. So. Oh, certainly the idea of the mountain, the mountain of perfection is all throughout the mystical tradition. Yeah. The, you know, the ascent of Mount Carmel, St. John of the Cross. John, yep. uh, 
so this idea that you have to climb something difficult and you leave at the at the base at the bottom your attachments or sins and as you slowly climb up a mountain you you might think of physically climbing you have a, like a backpack and a lot a lot of stuff on but as you're climbing yeah. it gets more difficult you have to strip away things yep. until you're at the very top and that's you're right at the summit of perfection and certainly what Isaiah is thinking in this reading is that that holy mountain mystically is the heavenly Jerusalem, mm-hmm. the, the the place where God dwells. And on the last day, he will invite everyone up the mountain or, or to the mountain. And those who, as we will see in the gospel, those who are properly disposed will make it to the top. Right. You know, all are invited, but right. few are chosen, as we will see. Yes. Well, that's good stuff um, for the first reading. Any other? You're good there? No, I think... Um... We can move into this psalm, which I think uh, dovetails off of that point quite nicely. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Psalm 23, uh, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Um, the responsorial uh, for this psalm for uh, liturgically is, I shall live in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Recalling again this theme that all people will dwell with the Lord for all eternity. Again, eschatological. Now, in, in uh, conjunction with this idea that climbing the mountain is difficult, it requires a kind of uh, journey, I think Psalm 23 is uh, very appropriate here. So, it's a very popular psalm, uh, and essentially it, it goes through the psalmist's journeying through life with the Lord comforting, comforting him along the way. So it begins, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. In verdant pastures, he gives me repose. Then it says, By, beside restful waters, he leads me. He refreshes my soul. So already there's a sense of a journey, like he's leading him on, right? The, the psalmist is walking among this peaceful landscape. Mm-hmm. However, it gets dark immediately. Uh, he guides me in right paths for his name's sake. Okay, still journeying in this um, serene, um, you know, uh, imagery here. Then it says, even though I walk in a dark valley, I fear no evil, for you are at my side. You spread the table before me in the sight of my foes. Uh, And so, you know, what I was reminded in uh, going through this uh, psalm in preparation for our podcast was the Lord of the Rings and how it begins, the adventure begins in a quiet, uh, beautiful, uh, like, garden almost, right? The Shire, right? Green verdant pastures. Um, But then once, you know, in this case, let's say Frodo and Sam, you could say Bilbo in The the Hobbit. Uh, But once their journey begins, it doesn't immediately take um, a a turn for the worse. Um, There's beautiful vistas, you know, like uh, beautiful landscapes. Uh, You know, actually, I just finished watching, rewatching Lord of the Rings and just some of the scenes are incredible. Uh, Very little uh, green screen which is really impressive. <laughs> um, they don't make them like they used to. But <laughs> that's true. But uh but so this idea that you're journeying uh and your journey takes you through good and bad. The journey takes you through good and bad. And yet if you are courageous, if you are set in God's will and you are aware of his presence, then nothing will disturb you. 
even though I walk in a dark valley, right? For Frodo and Sam, even though I walk through Mount Doom, uh, through through Mordor, I fear no evil for you are at my side. Uh, and the journey is taking you to what, you know, to the goal of your efforts, which in this case, in the readings, is the mountain of the Lord, right? It is um, that place where uh, you will live in the house of the Lord all the days of your life. Uh, and so, yeah, the sense of adventure, the sense of journeying, uh, the sense of being uh, steadfast in the Lord, knowing he's at your side, no matter what path you take. Um, I, I think that's like the core of Psalm 23. So. Yeah, I like that image that you're portraying of this journey. I think there's two main metaphors that frame this psalm, and it's the Lord as the divine shepherd and the, the divine host of the sacred meal. So there's four sections in the psalm, as, as, it's, as it is in the, the lectionary, there's four sections. So you have the, the first one where he's, the psalmist is talking about being in the verdant pastures. He said sort of a, a nice place, a place of comfort. And then he, he moves into the second part where you're right. He, you know, he says that the, the vine shepherd leads me along these, the, the right path, even though it may be a dark valley or there may be evil, I do not fear. So you have kind of goodness to then dark valley. Mm-hmm. But then you have the third part. He spreads a table before me. So this is now the Lord as the divine host of the sacred meal. Mm-hmm. And then the last part, the fourth part, is I shall live in, I shall dwell in the house of the Lord for years to come. Yeah. So that's almost the, the end, the, almost the death of, of the person, or the death of the psalmist in this passage. Mm, you have kind yeah. of life, his flowery and goodness, then maybe some struggle. But despite the struggle, the Lord is there with him. And because the Lord is there with him, he will give him this great banquet yeah. at the end of life, and then right. he will live in the house of the Lord. Yeah, and it's it's interesting how, you know, he, he says quite boldly, only goodness and kindness follow me all the days of my life. Despite saying that he was walking through a dark valley, despite seeing uh, saying that he was face-to-face with his foes, right, in the sight of my foes, uh, he can still claim that all of it was goodness, right? All of it was uh, an act of God's kindness, um, and I think that, that that is just emblematic of his deep relationship that he had with God. You know, right. I'm thinking again, going back to Lord of the Rings, uh, when Frodo is kind of despairing, um, and he's not sure why the ring came to him. And Gandalf says, you were meant to find the ring. And that's a comforting thought, you know, to, uh, alluding to this greater plan and this greater power that is beyond us, uh, that is guiding all things. So that even when you are in the, you know, pit of despair, you know, you're, 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 or on the verge of despair, I should say, and, you know, you're walking through the dark valley, you can still hold on to this truth that there's something greater than just you walking through evil. Right. Uh, and, and that's, as Gandalf says, and, and that's a comforting thought, right? Right. Um, and we can actually see then the Lord's hand turning that evil to goodness. And so that at the at the end you can look back and and say, only goodness and kindness followed me all the days of my life. Um, it's an act of immense faith, but it's really the only way to live, and it's the only way to get through that journey that takes us through all kinds of uh, you know uh, uh, scenery. 
to get to the house of the Lord. So, well, once you're at the banquet, right, and once you're dwelling in the house of the Lord, you can look back and realize that even the evil that you you saw as evil was ultimately for your good. For your good. Th- that yeah. you that was only it was only always goodness, right. but even if it didn't appear as though exactly in, in the time. Hindsight's twenty twenty, right? So. <laughs> well, exactly. Well, once you're at the banquet, you can kind of put everything. Like, yeah, okay, yeah. yeah, that was that was rough. But now that I'm here, and it's I'm, all worth it, right? And yeah, I'm enjoying exactly. myself. You're right. The yeah. the pain and the struggles they were worth it. Yeah, yeah. So the image of the divine, the the image of the divine shepherd as kind of guiding the psalmist and the people who are you know God's flock you know, with, with tenderness and compassion as, you know, he's a shepherd who takes into consideration kind of the, the fears and the weaknesses of his people that, you know, he, he won't lead them to, to destruction or to despair, even if they're in that valley, mm-hmm. he's ultimately leading them to the feast, right. to the banquet. Exactly. That, that it's not, I'm leading you to this place so that you will be fearful and destroyed, but that in order to get to the banquet, there are valleys yeah. that you might have to go right. into and, and in, in, on this adventure. No, definitely. And, you know, I would even take it a step further is that these dark valleys and these moments of uh, of evil are somehow ingredient in actually getting you to your goal. Uh, it's not just right. that you have to endure them and they'll turn to good at the end, but it actually somehow is necessary, Right. Um, of course, the ultimate example of this is is the cross, right? It's only through the cross, only through evil, um, which we are then able to achieve eternal life. Um, yeah, so. that, that's the the mystery of evil in this present age. Is it? It's somehow necessary. Yeah, we say in the, the Easter liturgy, you know, necessary fault. Yeah, uh, necessary you know, sin of Adam. The necessary sin of Adam. Yeah. And you think, like, how how does evil? play a part of this, but yeah. I, I don't think it's until we're at the banquet that you will truly see all, all you know, all of it. Exactly. And, you know, maybe even in this life, but you have to kind of take a, a Jobian yes, yeah, sense absolutely. of who are you to question me? Yeah. And, you know, as God says to Job and Job just kind of says, I'll shut my mouth and, yep. you know, kind of submit to this mystery. Yeah, uh, exactly. He he has a Job has a very interesting line. It's something like it's towards the end, it might be the final chapter where he says he says of God, I heard of you with the hearing of my ear, but now I see you with my eyes. Mm. So at the end of of all the suffering, it it's as though it says that God was an abstract thing almost or you know, I yeah. I knew of you. But now I see you. Right. So suffering in, in some in some sense gives us a new idea of God. Right. You know, that we actually experience even the evil things as the goodness of God or something right. like that. It's but, going back to the first reading, it's it's the veil that will be removed in a sense. It, right? Yeah, right. Yeah. Right. Is that only on the other side of the veil um, can we see how everything actually worked for the good. Right. And it, you know, we do have some glimpses of that even now. You know, we can see how you know, putting yourself through necessary pain can work for the better on a natural level, right? You know, the, the person who exercises, right, who puts his body through pain, that's necessary to get to where he wants to be. Um, 
you know, fasting, you know, all these things, giving up some things, which is can, can be considered a suffering and sacrifice in the present, works necessarily for a good in the future. Now, now the act of faith is where we can say, can all things work like this, right? Can all right. evil actually work like this? I think the Christian response is yes, um, but that is a an act of faith. Um, so, well, what undergirds that is belief or trust in the goodness of being, goodness right. of yeah, God. Yeah. And if yeah. you don't have this sort of fundamental orientation that being is good or that God is good, then yeah, everything is absurd. Right. You know, and there's, o- there's really only two ways to live, like to say none of this matters, right? Like a nihilistic approach to life. Uh, it is abs- Life is absurd. It's suffering. Or saying this is all ingredient to a grand narrative that will end in joy. Right. So, right. Which I think yeah. is partly the lesson from the psalmist is even amid trials and sufferings, the psalmist still has this, feels this sense of security as yep. he trusts that God, he trusts in God and that God will lead him to this eternal banquet and in fact will lead him in a way that protects him to get him to the, exactly. gets him to the I eternal I fear banquet. no evil um, for you are at my side. So Right. Right. All right. Want to tackle the, the second reading here? Second reading, yeah. Uh, and so, you know, this was kind of pertinent to me as a priest because as a priest, uh, we live in a, a, a varied amount of circumstances. And there's a lot of you know, one day I can be dining with, um, you know, a multimillionaire who's a parishioner, you know, a big right. donor. And the next day I can be visiting a poor family, right? And, all and things having, to all people. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Uh, and so uh, Paul is expressing this notion where he says, I know how to live in humble circumstances. I know also how to live with abundance. And so the the core here, the, the important thing here is that in every circumstance, I'm quoting now the reading, in every circumstance and in all things, I have learned the secret of being well-fed and of going hungry, of living in abundance and of being in need. And this is the key. I can do all things in him who strengthens me. So, if you are set in God, then prosperity or desolation doesn't really matter. <laughs> it doesn't matter in sure. the end. Uh, and, and I think this is what Paul is expressing. I think it's, um, for priests, this is very important to know uh, and, and really take to heart because we can be plucked, we can spend years at a very comfortable, affluent, you know, um, rich parish. And then the bishop says, hey, listen, uh, I need you in the far corners of this rural diocese. And, you know, you, you, took a promise and you say, yes, Bishop, you know, right. and uh, immediately your life flips around, you know, uh, are you able to remain steadfast in that? Like, like Paul, can you, do you know how to live in humble circumstances or with abundance? Um, and you, you won't be able to do it if, if you're going against Paul's, um, exhortation here, I can do all things in him who strengthens me. If he's not your daily bread, right. Um, then that's going to cause a lot of distress. <laughs> sure, so, right, yeah. right. I think there's a good connection here of the second reading with the psalm, actually. This idea of living with abundance or going without either one, I can do all things in him who strengthens me. Mm-hmm. And you see that in the psalm, again, at least in the, the first half of being inverted in pastures, yep. abundance, and then in the dark valley, 
in a time of need. But for for the psalmist, the Lord was there all the times. Yep. Or either you know in abundance or in need, the Lord was still there to strengthen him. And that's what Saint Paul is saying is, even if you know you seem like you're abandoned, you're not. And and don't I guess what what is the saying? You know, in times of of need. Yeah. Turn to the Lord, but don't forget the Lord in times of abundance. Something yeah, like it's that. A, in, in times of uh, prosperity, remember desolation. I don't know if desolation is the right word, but then in times of desolation, remember prosperity. Right. right? So you're balancing between the two at all times. Um, right. To, to just remember that just because everything seems good, the Lord is still there. He, you know, mm-hmm. His goodness is what has brought you here and given you this. So be grateful for that. But in, even in times of of darkness or the dark valley. That he's also still there, and he hasn't forgotten you just because you're yeah. going through this period of desolation or need or exactly. want. No, I think, yeah, that connection between the psalm and the second reading is very um, apparent, I think. Um, he goes through, yeah, like you said, um, walking beside restful waters, walking through the dark valley. Um, despite all of this, he says, only goodness and kindness follow me all the days of my life um, because the Lord is at his side. Um and that's, yeah, um, that idea that, you know, to when you're prospering, when you're consoled, uh, to remember desolation, and then in times of desolation to remember consolation. I think it's very um, dangerous to one's spiritual life that when you're experiencing something, everything in your life is going great, you're consoled in spirit and, you know, even in um, uh, even your body's consoled, to not just, like like, sink in that and just think like this is all there is, right? Um, because that is just one moment in your life and all lives go through ups and downs. Sure. Um, and so to remember that, like to be grateful for it, of course, I'm not saying like ignore it, um, but to, to temper that with knowing like this is not the end all be all. And as good as you might be feeling now, to remember that one day you will, like God encompasses all that and more, right? This is just a foretaste of the glory to come. So that when you move into a moment of desolation, you can say, well, this was expected because this was not going to last forever. And you can still remember those moments of consolation that you had in the past, but also look forward to when the desolation will end, right? Um, and so while you know, we go through moments of consolation, desolation, ups and downs all throughout life, everybody experiences, experiences this, you need to remain steady through it. Um, again, as our Lord says, um, uh, as, as Paul says, that uh, he can do all things in him who strengthens me. If God is your anchor there, then you won't be perturbed by whatever waves, whatever, whichever ways the waves are flowing. So. Well, that's the secret that he says he's found. Yeah, he learned the secret, yeah. Yeah, because I, I was wondering when I first read it, what, what does he mean by that and what is it? What is the secret of being well-fed and going hungry? And the secret, I believe, at least I think um, grammatically or semantically mm-hmm. how it's laid out is that he can do all things in Christ who strengthens him. Yeah. That that's the secret of if you want to remain as you said kind of consistent and steady in both being well fed and hungry look to Christ who can strengthen you in both those times. Exactly. And it cuz I actually as paradoxical as paradoxical as it may seem you actually do need to be strengthened in times of prosperity because of what you said it's so mm-hmm. easy to just kind of sink into it and think this is all there is, or yeah. I, you know, I don't really need God. Kind of unconsciously, mm-hmm. you kind of uh, are so comfortable that you don't think of of suffering. 
but that actually maybe you need God more than. Right. It's, it's hard to say what is better for man, uh, you know, want or abundance. Yeah. You know, it seems like both have a, an that's, element of danger. That's a good point. You know, the rich man, it's hard for the rich man to enter into heaven, right? Um, no, what does our Lord say? And it's easier for uh, a camel to enter the eye of the needle than the rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Uh, and I think it's exactly for that point that you mentioned. Um, in our prosperity, we it's easy to forget God because um, you're consoled. You don't need you don't find a need in that moment. And if you don't find a need in that moment, then you know do you need God? You're not even thinking of the question <laughs> really. Right. Um, but and I think that that's also echoed in what Paul is saying when he says, "I can do all things in Him who strengthens me." There's an element of recognition, uh, him recognizing his weakness in this, right? Um, if you are just used to living in abundance and you're forgetting God, then why will you need Christ to strengthen you, right? Uh, this presupposes that you recognize you are weak, that you are in need, that you need help. Once you recognize that weakness, as, as Paul says in another place, when I am weak, that's when he is strong. So you recognize your your need, and then that allows God's grace to enter into your heart, and then remain steady through good and bad. So right, if you remember that you are to have the same attitude as Paul says in the same letter, if you're supposed to have the same attitude of Christ, the same mind of Christ, which is this self-emptying, this being humble. Another word, you know, being weak, as you said, remembering that you you're not God. That this is what will sustain you in both those times. Mm-hmm. That even even in abundance, you'll realize that I'm still supposed to be humble, and I am ultimately weak in this moment. Even though I am well fed, I could as easily not be well fed. Right. So right. I need Christ to strengthen me to remember that. Yep. And then when I'm hungry, to remember that Christ hasn't abandoned, have the strength to remember that Christ hasn't abandoned me. Exactly. But, yeah, I think there's a nice little correlation there with the psalm and in that reading. Any other thoughts on that? No, I'm ready to move to the gospel, if you there, are. There's a lot in the gospel, yeah. but I am. <laughs> I'm ready. So we're back to the idea of the eschatological banquet, or at least a, a marriage feast. Yeah, feast, yep. In the, the gospel. Uh, do you want to read some of it? or? Yeah, sure. To... So this is a parable from our Lord uh, where he says, The kingdom of heaven may be likened to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. So immediately we have that correlation between uh, the kingdom of heaven, uh, where God dwells, and the feast. So he continues, He dispatched his servants to summon the invited guests to the feasts, but they refused to come. A second time he sent other servants, saying, Tell those invited, Behold, I have prepared my banquet. My My calves and fattened cattle are killed, and everything is ready. Come to the feast. Some ignored the invitation and went away, one to his farm, another to his business. The rest laid hold of his servants, mistreated them, and killed them. The king was enraged and sent his troops, destroyed those murderers, and burned their cities. Then he said to his servants, The feast is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy to come. Go out therefore into the main roads and invite to the feast whomever you find. The servants went out into the streets and gathered all they found, bad and good alike, and the hall was filled with guests. But when the king came to meet the guests, he saw a man there, not dressed in a wedding garment. 
He said to him, My friend, how is it that you come here without a wedding garment? But he was reduced to silence. And the king said to his attendants, Bind his hands and feet and cast them into the darkness outside, where there will be wailing and grinding of teeth. Many are invited, but few are chosen. That is the gospel of the Lord. So <laughs> that's um, there. there is a lot here. And I think some of it can be a little perplexing too. Uh, you know, my, the immediate um, question I had when I was going over this uh, gospel was, why are why are people who are invited to this feast not taking it seriously? Right? If if a king has a son, the prince of the kingdom is going to be married, and there's going to be a great feast. Like, shouldn't the entire land be celebrating, right? And if yeah. you're invited to this feast, like that should be your top priority. But for, for but you know, but but to be personally invited by, like, you know, the, the king send his, the king sends his servants. You know, can you imagine you're on your field, you know, you know, plowing, um, you know, the, 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 the dirt. There's a man that comes to you and says, you're, behold, you are invited to this great feast. And you say, well, you know, I'm going to actually tend my farm instead of go. Like that, it doesn't just make any sense, right? Yeah. Um, so what's going on here? And, and not even just uh, ignoring the servants, but our Lord says in this parable that some people actually laid hold of his servants, mistreated them, and killed them. So what, what kind of reaction is that <laughs> to the invitation of, of the king? Um, it, it, you know, on the face of it, it does not make much sense. I think I like Matthew or uh, Luke's version of it better because it actually has like this very abs- even more absurd element to it. But and when I read, it, I almost laugh because it it's very telling of who we are, who you who humans are. And I think the same thing is actually happening here um, to a less obvious extent. But it's this idea that this is kind of how we act. This is the right. absurdity of human nature is God is it has this great banquet, right? This this eschatological banquet in heaven that he's inviting everybody to. But he sends out invitations and nobody responds. Everyone just kind of rejects it. You you, you can't help but think of like the prophets that he sends, right? Right. Yeah. You know, the first ones we just get a rejection. It doesn't really say, it just says they ignored it, mm-hmm. I believe. And then the second is more dangerous than, yeah. you know, kind of more obvious that um, people lay hold of them and kill them. But it, you also get some explanation as some people say, well, you know, I have a farm or another mm-hmm. goes to his business. So there's some symbolic readings you can make of that people were more preoccupied with worldly pursuits than the yeah. call of the prophets to right. give up their farms and to, or to maybe not even give up their farm, but maybe reorient themselves yeah. and their, their work to God. I think in... Yeah. In Luke's, he says, you know, he's like, come to the banquet. And someone's like, well, I, you know, I, I just got married. You know, mm-hmm. and it's a, and it's an absurd excuse, but this is the excuses that people make. Yeah. That they they haven't turned to God. It's like, well, you know, I'm just, I'm busy. Yeah. You know, I, I, gotta, I got stuff to do. Right. I'm reminded of like, oh, well, my son has baseball practice or my son has soccer practice, you know, or he has a game on Sunday. Can't go to mass. Okay. <laughs> well, well, that's that. That's exactly. I think part of this parable is that we make all these excuses. Yeah. I think the traditional way of breaking down the first two groups is the first 
group of their their first set of in, invites to the wedding is indifference. Mm-hmm. That people don't they just they don't even really give a, a reason. They yeah, just, they just refuse to go. Yep. They just decline and go back to their pursuits. But then the second is indignation. So it's people not only they're not indifferent, but they actually fight the idea of being invited. Yeah. So symbolically, it's fighting the idea of salvation. Yeah. That when people say, hey, this is a call to repentance or the call of the gospel, the good news, that it's a, a threat to their happiness. Right. It's a threat to right. my farm and to my business because what you're, you're making a demand on me. Right. And so you get this violent reaction as opposed to indifference because now you're, you're kind of impinging on me, you're saying. Yeah. Um, right. So like I said, historically, that could be the prophets. Yeah, or... there's there's a sense of um, achadia, right? That that uh, idea that 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 sin, where you grow sad in the face of a spiritual good, right? You're left unmotivated, and you you don't desire that which is good. Where these servants who, or I'm sorry, the the, the these people who are invited to this feast lay hold of the servants and destroy them, kill them. You know, I, I'm trying to enter into their mindset where they're saying, here is a good that I can participate in, right? Rejoicing with the whole kingdom, being close to the king. But that, like you said, that would make a demand on my life, right? I would have to put aside whatever I'm doing in my ordinary life. I, as we see later, there's a certain way that you have to uh, attend the wedding, right? You have to uh, approach the king in a wedding garment, right? I think that could be sub- symbolically interpreted as changing some things about my life. Uh, so that I can then make room for this feast, and if if you are just indifferent to that, um, into to that lifestyle, to that invitation, then it makes sense that if 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 someone's going to keep persisting you to attend, you're going to react violently, right? right. You're going to say no, I I don't want to go, and so it led to the killing of uh, the king's servants. A little so. bit of a the prophet Nathan and, and David, you know, who would do that? Mm, yeah. And, you know, who, you know, who, who would act like that? Yeah. And the answer is you would act like that. We act like that. Right. right. Of like, well, who, who would, you know, get invited to this nice party and yet make excuses. It's like, yeah, but we do that all the time when, yeah. when, when it comes to, to God. Yep. And what he's asking of us is we make excuses. Yep. And now, you know, symbolically you could say that, you know, when they killed the servants, is this is his, well? I guess historically, it's like you said, it's the prophets, it's the apostles. Mm-hmm. Um, I think usually the historical interpretation is the first set was maybe the prophets, and the second set is the apostles, mm, yeah. and then, and then finally you have uh, the coming of the sun, or the the eschatological element. But symbolically, you could say that the kind of the killing of the prophets is this again that we had last week, this deadening of the conscience that you you kill mentally or, or symbolically, any any message that makes you have to change. Yeah, exactly. And, and you know, if you if we want to bring a, the first reading into the gospel, uh, that demand on your life can be seen as kind of climbing the Lord's mountain, right? Yeah. Um, so that's, that's where the Lord dwells again. Uh, this is where he has his feast. If you want to get there, you have to make some effort, right? You don't just magically pop up before our Lord and get to enjoy um, the fruits of his feast. 
without some demand on your life, without some change, without some effort, without right. climbing the mountain, or right. in the gospel's language, without a proper wedding garment. Right. Right. So, so let's. That's a great transition to talk about that. So there's two forms uh, of the gospel this Sunday. You have a, the long form and the short form. So if you get the short form, in my opinion, my humble opinion, you get kind of a feel-good element. You know, it's kind of, it's. I mean, yeah, okay, yeah. the king destroyed their cities, but, you know, he killed their servants. <laughs> but at the end, yeah. it says, the servants went out into the streets and gathered all they found, bad and good alike, and the hall was filled with guests. Right. So you kind of have this... All are welcome. Yeah, yeah, yeah you get a little <laughs> bit of all are welcome. You get a little bit of this, like, you know... We had our differences, you know, on earth, but, you know, in the end, God will, will kind of smooth everything yeah. out. You know, God's goodness and his love and his justice will, you know, everyone will get a seat at the table. Yeah, you were a bad person, but here you are. Everything's fine. <laughs> right, exactly. You know, a little yeah. bit of moral therapeutic deism. Yeah, kind of. and, and that, that language of bad and good alike is interesting. Um, it uh, Yeah, I, I, on first gla- glance, it does feel like eh, it doesn't, you know, you don't have to change, you know. It, right. It's just... Come as you are, like you said. Um, but if you get the if you get the long version, that's where the challenge comes. This up. is right. This is where you get a little <laughs> a little a little harsh rebuke and criticism here. So, this is where you get the man with the wedding garment, and so you know, the hall was filled with guests. But when the king came to, in to meet the guests, he saw a man there not dressed in a wedding garment. The king sent said to him, "My friend, how is it that you came here without a wedding garment?" So. Let's hit on the wedding garment. Yeah. So uh, apparently in the Greek, friend here, this Greek word, is it implies that the questioner knows the answer or is putting the person on the spot. Okay. So it's not an actual friend. It's someone who's posing as a friend but have okay. their, ha- has their own interests in mind that it's, it's an imposter. Hmm. So he, the king kind of knows what's up. And then he asked him about the the wedding garment. So do you want to unpack the wedding garment a bit? Yeah. So as a priest, as uh, someone who deals with people all the time uh, in confession at mass, uh, my immediate reaction was, uh, oh, this is how this is how approaching communion with in a state of mortal sin is like. <laughs> That's what I thought of. Uh you know, you are approaching the threshold of the sanctuary, and the priest is going to give you the body of Christ. Are you prepared to consume that reality? If, as St. Paul says, you know, if you are not prepared, if you're wearing the wrong wedding garment, then you will eat and drink condom- your own condemnation. Right. right, that that bread of life becomes the bread of death for you, and that's exactly what happens here. Is that this man entered into the sanctuary, the holy of holies, right? This feast, and he was unprepared, and he is cast out into the darkness, where there will be wailing and grinding of teeth. That that um, term, wailing and grinding of teeth, this is what we use for hell, right? And right. so that that's that's the first thing that came to my mind. Um. I don't know if you had any more. No, uh, we'll we'll continue with that. Um, I was reading some commentaries about this, and scholars were saying that it's kind of unclear what a, what this wedding garment would be, because there wasn't anything 
that people would normally change into or to wear. But the basic idea was clean clothes. Clean clothes. Yeah. So okay. you could say, or you might think, well, the servants were sent out kind of in great haste and said, invite everybody in. So this guy was working in a field and they said, come to the feast. And he came, unlike the other guy who said, well, I have a farm. I'm not going to come. But there still is this expectation, though, mm-hmm. that even if you're invited last minute, that you are supposed to change your clothes yeah. and come to the wedding. So there is still an expectation, I would say, in this final judgment yeah. that there is something that has to be changed, even if it's last minute or even whatever it is. We've talked about deathbed conversions a lot. Yeah. But there still is supposed to be a change. You can't just continue as you are. Mm-hmm. But going off this idea of, of how you kind of come to Mass or how you prepare, the the Church Fathers have many interpretations of the wedding garment, but they all seem to have this this one element that it's not enough to just have faith and it's not enough to be a part of the Church, but there's something else missing. So St. Augustine, as you might imagine, has, has an interpretation of the wedding garment and he, he says, he, he kind of goes through a list of, well, what could the wedding garment be? So he says, is the wedding garment the sacraments? He says, well, the good and the bad partake in the sacraments, so it's not the sacraments. Hmm. So is it baptism? He says, well, there are people who are baptized who don't go to heaven. You know, is it the Eucharist? Is it the altar? He's like, okay, no, well, but people, to your point, eat and drink condemnation upon themselves. The, the bad and the good receive the Eucharist. It was it going to church? He said, no, the wicked go to church. So what is it? And he says, it's charity. The wedding mm-hmm. garment is charity. That one, the thing that separates the good and the bad is charity. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's faith, yes, but it's faith with charity. Right. So without charity, it's not enough to go to, go to heaven, to right. just simply have faith. Right. And we can understand charity as like the life of God within you, right? The, the right. Holy Spirit. Right. Um, well, there, there's, you know, charity covers a multitude of sins, they say. So yeah. it's a, a garment that you wear, you know, it's putting on Christ. Right. You know? So right. the idea of, of a garment, something that you put on to go to the, to the feast. Yeah, absolutely. And so I think we can say that while all are invited, right, uh, the good and the bad alike, the hall was filled with guests, there still needs to be a distinction. Um where while you may be invited and you're going to join and you know participate in this great feast, you have to work towards that unity um, in Christ, which requires automatically a change. Uh, you know, this is I'm reminded of um, you know that great um, uh, distinction between uh, us, the Savior and the Judge, right? Where on the face of it, they seem opposed to each other, but in reality, they're one of the same thing, right? That, that which saves you uh, requires uh, a, a judgment on your life. You can't be saved from something if there's nothing to save you from, right? And mm-hmm. that's that's automatically a judgment. And so, so yeah. Um, and this is the, the last line of the, the gospel. Many are invited, but few are chosen. The good and the bad alike in the hall is filled with guests. Many are invited, but few are chosen. And so... The person with the improper wedding garment was not chosen. <laughs> he was thrown into the darkness outside. Um, so, yeah, um, yeah, it's it's this idea that he 
he responded, right? So I think he's, St. Augustine says that he's one man, but he's supposed to be a symbol of, of all of a kind of man. Yeah. That it wasn't just one man who was thrown out. It was one kind of- Type of man, yeah. Type of person, so right. many people, if you want to take the eschatological read of this parable. And so it wasn't enough for him to appear at the banquet. It wasn't, you know, he responded, yes, but he didn't convert completely. Yeah. So another read of the wedding garment is this idea of kind of continual repentance. Mm-hmm. This idea that repentance isn't a one and done thing. It's something that what one must continually do again and again. Right. You know, St. John Henry Newman would say that we're ever beginning. Repentance mm. is, we're never done repenting. Yeah. And so this is somebody who, it is the the man without the wedding garment is a a symbol of those who perhaps relied on faith you know that i yeah you know i've said the creed i go to mass i get my fire insurance i'm fine and i'm yeah, good exactly. it's like well no you have to you all those things have to be infused with charity which is love of god love of neighbor plus this idea of continual repentance that it's it's not enough to just confess once yeah and it's not even the idea that Good deeds will save you. It's it's all of this is you right. know as Saint Paul says all of it is useless unless you have charity. Yeah, it's it's a, it's something within, right? Right. Um, it's it's a it's like a mode of being, not just doing, because you could even categorize going to church, let's say, as as just doing, right? I go to church. That's like like you said, you know, I have my fire insurance. Uh, but what what is the way in which you actually participate in in that? Feast, you know, uh, not to call anybody specifically out, because um, it's it's a, like like the gospel says it's a type of person. As Augustine says, it's a type of person, not one specific person. But you know, I've experienced so many people that just come to mass. You know, they'll, they'll come maybe right after the first reading uh, and come in their gym shorts and flip flops, receive the body of Christ, and then leave right after communion. Right. Um, is, is that really the way to approach, you know, the holy of holies? Um, there's a sense of, you know, when we push this message of all are invited, all are welcome, you know, everything's hippy dippy. <laughs> um, it, it it lends itself to a relaxed spirituality, to where nothing is really sacred, right? Um, this is why I love um, C.S. Lewis's um, "Till We Have Faces," because it treats the sacred as something to be feared. And this is um, it's that book where he famously says, "Holy places are dark places." Uh, you know, the priests are something that are mysterious and hidden in the shadows. Um, and I think that, you know, th- that that's a healthy way to approach that which is holy. Um, you know, uh, this is why communion rails can be a great symbol of, uh, mm-hmm. you know, separating uh, earth from heaven, right? Um, and we don't just, we, we should approach God cautiously, uh, recognizing that while we are invited we have to do our part to make sure that our interior life, right, is filled with charity, like you said. Um, and ultimately, he is that judge of whether or not, you know, we are worthy or unworthy. And so he could throw us out if we're if we're not careful to really prepare well. So uh, approaching the sacred with caution, reverence, even a little bit of fear, uh, while it may run contrary to what we typically think of, like, all are welcome and a very cheery uh, spirituality, I think um, it's very wise. Uh, and very prudent. So, well, 
fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but exactly. I, I think we really miss something at, miss something when we don't get the, to your point, the end of this gospel, which kind of summarizes everything, that many are invited, but few are chosen. Because the, the point is that although many or even all are called to the kingdom, not all are going to be found worthy. Yeah. And perhaps, you know, even, you know, you are among them, I'm among them. That's why there's this idea of continual repentance, because I'm not sure that I'm the few yet. Yeah. I have been called for sure. I have been invited. But will I be the few that enters? You know, we'll see. You know, throughout the gospel, there's the some who decline the invitation. Some, ex, you know, ex, excuse themselves from the invitation. Um, but others accept, but they don't accept enough. They yeah. sort of take yeah, back their acceptance. Right. I heard a story from a priest once that on the day of his ordination, he was walking through a hallway. He'd just been ordained, you know, the festivities, kind of died, he was walking through a hallway, and there was an older priest walking the other way. And, you know, the priest begins to come towards him. He's thinking, oh, he's going to say congratulations. He's going to say, you know, kind of your blessing. And he he grabs the priest's hand and looks him in the eye, the newly ordained priest, and says, you've just given your life to Christ. Don't spend the rest of your life taking it back. So this idea that you have accepted the faith, you've been baptized, you go to church, you kind of have the beginnings of faith or belief, but you you still have to, you can take that back. Mm. And you can take it back in subtle and unconscious ways right. of even, you know, slight neglects. Like, you know, you're not a, a heinous sinner yeah. or openly denying God, but you just haven't quite committed yeah, to totally. living living the gospel, and it, out. I think it's very easy for um, a lot of well-meaning, um, faithful Catholics and, and Christians to say, you know, like you said, I go to church on Sundays, I pray X, Y, and Z, and you just kind of leave it at that, right? Um, I, you know, there's, there has to be a continual growth and a continual introspection as you live your Christian life. I think um, complacency in the spiritual life is so easy to fall into when. You know, and there's been days, I'll admit, you know, like as a priest, I'm like, okay, I got my holy hour in. I, you know, did my liturgy of the hours, said mass. I'm good. Like, you know, this is a baseline that you say, like, this is these are the things I have to do today, and I consider my day a success. Um, the danger is, is if you just rely on that, you're not continually checking and being authentic in your prayer. And this goes, you know, back to what our Lord says about praying. It's like, don't babble like the pagans do, where you just check off your list like the, your spiritual practices, um, there has to be a intentional um, responding to our Lord. You know, putting on the proper wedding garment. Right. So. And when looking to that wedding garment, and what you know what it, what it means to be chosen and the few and the many, I, I like this meditation or this idea from Saint John Henry Newman, kind of Petersonian again. He says we don't really know what's meant by chosen or what's meant by few. But it's definitely not the way of the many. Yeah. Like we, we know that. We know that the way of the many is opposed to the way of the few. Right. So we shouldn't look to the judgment of the many about what to do, mm-hmm. but to the few. Right. Like what, what is it that the few do that we should also do? And he right. said, so look at the saints, look at this tradition that's been handed down to us, look to Christ, look to the apostles. Because those are clearly the way of the few. Mm-hmm. So whatever they do, you should do yourself. Yeah. That to kind of 
to give you a a more assured path that you are both chosen and maybe part of the few. That is a very practical standard. Just look at what the world is doing for the most part. Just don't do that. Right. (laughs) Right. That's a good first step. (laughs) Right. It's like being a part of the many will not lead you to the wedding banquet. Yeah. That's what the gospel clearly says. Exactly. It's that it is only the few. It's the way is narrow. Yeah. As as we've said. But don't treat your, you know, let your faith be animated by charity as opposed Mm -hmm. to, like you said, this kind of mechanical way. Because, again, you know, just kind of routinely going to Mass and routinely doing your prayers as you were describing, that, that doesn't appear... Bad. You wouldn't say, oh, I'm taking my faith no, back sure, from right, God. Exactly. But if it's not animated or undergirded by charity, then it's kind of subtly mm-hmm. bad. You know, you, yeah. don't, you don't even notice how in these ways that you're kind of falling back. Yep. You're, you're taking back your profession of faith exactly. in a way. But uh, any other any thoughts you would like to share? No, I think uh, that covers it. Um, there was a lot here, but I think, uh, I think we said what we needed to say. So I'm gonna gonna end with a couple ideas, couple couple quotes from a few people. Um, again, I've been reading a lot of St. John Henry Newman. If you can't tell, um, when I found out, I took the 23 and Me test a couple years ago, yeah. and I found out I was mostly English, and so I was like, okay, I gotta find some English saints <laughs> to. That's good. There's a lot of you know English classic writers. Yes, um, yes. Um, I I picked up. Some sermons by John Henry Newman, and then like I think like the following week we had a a speaker come to the seminary and talked about him. And okay, you know apparently apparently John Henry Newman was a spectacular man. Just uh, apart from obviously being a saint, but just his intellect and such like that. Well, but, and he's a beautiful writer too. Well, yeah, yeah that's what they're saying. It, one of the best writers in the English language. Yes, yeah. So I have a collection of his uh, poetry and hymns and uh, yeah writings and yeah he's yeah good. So from him, a uh, little quote says, uh, faith at most makes us a hero. Love makes us a saint. Hmm. So, you know, it. although well, as it goes on, it says faith can make us sober, but love makes us happy. Kind of, I like that as well. But this idea that in, in everything that we do, unless it has faith or unless it has love, unless it has charity, it's, it's nothing. It's kind of this cold, dead faith, but it's this heavenly flame of love that kind of animates things. Uh, something from... Ludolf of Saxony. Okay, that's not one that I read often. Yeah. (laughs) Actually, when you mentioned the life of Christ. um, From Ignatius. From Ignatius. It may have been that. Really? Okay. It's sometimes uh, some biographies I've read talk about he he read a collection of the lives of the saints. And it's kind of hard to tell if it was that or if it was the life of Christ sometimes. But I think around that time. The Life of Christ by Ludolf of Saxony had been translated into Spanish, so okay. he may have been okay. reading that. But uh, Ludolf of Saxony says that that man without the wedding garment, when he was reduced to silence, he said that will be us in the final judgment, mm. that none of us can make an excuse to God. None of us can answer to right. God. Right, that's a good that way to put it. we are convicted by our own conscience and we will remain mute. That his silence, that the silence of that man shows every kind of excuse will cease at the final judgment. That's that's a powerful image, Um Right, you know, and I noticed that um, that sentence here, but he was reduced to silence. Like there's nothing he could say. It's like, well, I forgot. I, no, the fact is, is that you're here at the wedding, improperly. Right. Like that's right. That's it. Right. Every yeah. now and then, you you see 
some like videos of atheists so, like well, if you meet god what will you say so, yeah yeah <laughs> i'll question him about cancer and yeah, i'll question right. him about it's like i would be impressed if you were managed to say a single word right, <laughs> right. it's like no i actually don't think you'll be doing the talking yeah. <laughs> i think god will be doing the talking not you yeah exactly um lastly of course saint augustine great meditation that we should not be christians in name only so he says that on the on the final judgment, we should be found clothed with the Christian name, but we should also have the Christian deeds hmm. that, you know, many will rebuke us immediately by saying, you know, how can you call yourself a Christian when you don't have the, the actions of a Christian? So he says, you know, everyone receives a name for a particular reason. So a shoemaker is called a shoemaker because he makes shoes. Right, right. He says, so a Christian is called a Christian because he imitates Christ. And right. He follows the deeds of Christ. And he actually has a pretty damning accusation. He says, whoever does not follow Christ not only forfeits the name, but should be called Antichrist. Well, dang. No, I was like, <laughs> dang. But, I mean, logically, that makes sense. Like, right. if you're not living in a way that models Christ as a Christian, what are you? Right. You can't be neutral because you know Christ. Right. There has to be a walking away from it, right? And right. that's anti-Christian, anti-Christ. Well, and he takes St. John's letters as the proof of that, of whoever denies Christ is the Antichrist. Yeah, right, so if exactly. you deny Christ by your actions and words, it says you are the Antichrist. Yeah. So think about that as our closing. We didn't say, we didn't say it. St. Augustine did. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. So anyone who denies Christ by his actions could be the Antichrist. We'll, we'll end there for a sober yeah, for a happy thought. <laughs> yeah, for a sober meditation. Uh, well, thank you again for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, again, please like, share, and subscribe. And if you have any questions or sub or topics you want us to talk about, you can email us at basicallyrelatedpodcast at gmail.com. Mm-hmm.